Part 1 of Chapter 2 of Book 2 of The Wealth of Nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Part 1 of Chapter 2 of Book 2 of money considered as a particular branch of the general stock of the society or of the expense of maintaining the national capital it has been shown in the first book that the price of the greater part of commodities resolves itself into three parts of which one pays the wages of the labor another the profits of the stock and a third the rent of the land which had been employed in producing and bringing them to market that there are indeed some commodities of which the price is made up of two of those parts only the wages of labor and the profits of stock and a very few in which it consists altogether in one the wages of labor but that the price of every commodity necessarily resolves itself into some one or other or all of those three parts every part of it which goes neither to rent nor to wages being necessarily profit to somebody since this is the case it has been observed with regard to every particular commodity taken separately it must be so with regard to all the commodities which compose the whole annual produce of the land and labor of every country taken complexly the whole price or exchangeable value of that annual produce must resolve itself into the same three parts and be parcelled out among the different inhabitants of the country either as the wages of their labor the profits of their stock or the rent of their land but though the whole value of the annual produce of the land and labor of every country is thus divided among and constitutes a revenue to its different inhabitants yet as in the rent of a private estate we distinguish between the gross rent and the neat rent so may we likewise in the revenue of all the inhabitants of a great country the gross rent of a private estate comprehends whatever is paid by the farmer the neat rent what remains free to the landlord after deducting the expense of management of repairs and all other necessary charges or what without hurting his estate he can afford to place in his stock reserved for immediate consumption or to spend upon his table equipage the ornaments of his house and furniture his private enjoyments and amusements his real wealth is in proportion not to his gross but to his neat rent the gross revenue of all the inhabitants of a great country comprehends the whole annual produce of their land and labor the neat revenue what remains free to them after deducting the expense of maintaining first their fixed and secondly their circulating capital or what without encroaching upon their capital they can place in their stock reserved for immediate consumption or spend upon their subsistence conveniencies and amusements their real wealth too is in proportion not to their gross but to their neat revenue the whole expense of maintaining the fixed capital must evidently be excluded from the neat revenue of the society neither the materials necessary for supporting their useful machines and instruments of trade their profitable buildings etc nor the produce of the labor necessary for fashioning those materials into the proper form can ever make any part of it the price of that labor may indeed make a part of it as the workmen so employed may place the whole value of their wages in their stock reserved for immediate consumption but in other sorts of labor both the price and the produce go to this stock the price to that of the workmen the produce to that of other people whose subsistence conveniencies and amusements are augmented by the labor of those workmen the intention of the fixed capital is to increase the productive powers of labor or to enable the same number of laborers to perform a much greater quantity of work 
in a farm where all the necessary buildings fences drains communications etc are in the most perfect good order the same number of laborers and laboring cattle will raise a much greater produce than in one of equal extent and equally good ground but not furnished with equal conveniencies in manufactures the same number of hands assisted with the best machinery will work up a much greater quantity of goods than with more imperfect instruments of trade the expense which is properly laid out upon a fixed capital of any kind is always repaid with great profit and increases the annual produce by a much greater value than that of the support which such improvements require this support however still requires a certain portion of that produce a certain quantity of materials and the labor of a certain number of workmen both of which might have been immediately employed to augment the food clothing and lodging the subsistence and conveniences of the society are thus diverted to another employment highly advantageous indeed but still different from this one it is upon this account that all such improvements in mechanics as enable the same number of workmen to perform an equal quantity of work with cheaper and simpler machinery than had been usual before are always regarded as advantageous to every society a certain quantity of materials and the labor of a certain number of workmen which had before been employed in supporting a more complex and expensive machinery can afterwards be applied to augment the quantity of work which that or any other machinery is useful only for performing the undertaker of some great manufactory who employs a thousand a year in the maintenance of his machinery if he can reduce this expense to five hundred will naturally employ the other five hundred in purchasing an additional quantity of materials to be wrought up by an additional number of workmen the quantity of that work therefore which his machinery was useful only for performing will naturally be augmented and with it all the advantage and conveniency which the society can derive from that work the expense of maintaining the fixed capital in a great country may very properly be compared to that of repairs in a private estate the expense of repairs may frequently be necessary for supporting the produce of the estate and consequently both the gross and the neat rent of the landlord when by a more proper direction however it can be diminished without occasioning any diminution of produce the gross rent remains at least the same as before and the neat rent is necessarily augmented but though the whole expense of maintaining the fixed capital is thus necessarily excluded from the neat revenue of the society it is not the same case with that of maintaining the circulating capital of the four parts of which this latter capital is composed money provisions materials and finished work the three last it has already been observed are regularly withdrawn from it and placed either in the fixed capital of the society or in their stock reserved for immediate consumption whatever portion of those consumable goods is not employed in maintaining the former goes all to the latter and makes a part of the neat revenue of the society the maintenance of those three parts of the circulating capital therefore withdraws no portion of the annual produce from the neat revenue of the society besides what is necessary for maintaining the fixed capital the circulating capital of a society is in this respect different from that of an individual that of an individual is totally excluded from making any part of his neat revenue which must consist altogether in his profits but though the circulating capital of every individual makes a part of that of the society to which he belongs it is not upon that account totally excluded from making a part likewise of their neat revenue though the whole goods in a merchant's shop must by no means be placed in his own stock reserved for immediate consumption they may in that of other people who from a revenue derived from other funds may regularly replace their value to them together with its profits without occasioning any diminution either of his capital or of theirs 
Money, therefore, is the only part of the circulating capital of a society of which the maintenance can occasion any diminution in their neat revenue. The fixed capital, and that part of the circulating capital which consists in money, so far as they affect the revenue of the society, bear a very great resemblance to one another. First, as those machines and instruments of trade, etc., require a certain expense, first to erect them, and afterwards to support them, both which expenses, though they make a part of the gross, are deductions from the neat revenue of the society, so the stock of money which circulates in any country must require a certain expense, first to collect it, and afterwards to support it, both which expenses, though they make a part of the gross, are in the same manner deductions from the neat revenue of the society. A certain quantity of very valuable materials, gold and silver, and of very curious labor, instead of augmenting the stock reserved for immediate consumption, the subsistence, conveniencies, and amusements of individuals, is employed in supporting that great but expensive instrument of commerce, by means of which every individual in the society has his subsistence, conveniencies, and amusements, regularly distributed to him in their proper proportions. Secondly, as the machines and instruments of trade, etc., which compose the fixed capital, either of an individual or of a society, make no part either of the gross or of the neat revenue of either, so money, by means of which the whole revenue of the society is regularly distributed among all its different members, makes itself no part of that revenue. The great wheel of circulation is altogether different from the goods which are circulated by means of it. The revenue of the society consists altogether in those goods, and not in the wheel which circulates them. In computing either the gross or the neat revenue of any society, we must always, from the whole annual circulation of money and goods, deduct the whole value of the money, of which not a single farthing can ever make any part of either. It is the ambiguity of language only which can make this proposition appear either doubtful or paradoxical. When properly explained and understood, it is almost self-evident. When we talk of any particular sum of money, we sometimes mean nothing but the metal pieces of which it is composed, and sometimes we include in our meaning some obscure reference to the goods which can be had in exchange for it, or to the power of purchasing which the possession of it conveys. Thus, when we say that the circulating money of England has been computed at eighteen millions, we mean only to express the amount of the metal pieces which some writers have computed, or rather have supposed, to circulate in that country. But when we say a man is worth fifty or a hundred pounds a year, we mean commonly to express not only the amount of the metal pieces which are annually paid to him, but the value of the goods which he can annually purchase or consume. We mean commonly to ascertain what is, or ought to be, his way of living, or the quantity and quality of the necessaries and conveniencies of life in which he can with propriety indulge himself. When, by any particular sum of money, we mean not only to express the amount of the metal pieces of which it is composed, but to include in its signification some obscure reference to the goods which can be had in exchange for them, the wealth or revenue which it in this case denotes is equal only to one of the two values which are thus intimated somewhat ambiguously by the same word, and to the latter more properly than to the former, to the money's worth more properly than to the money. Thus, if a guinea be the weekly pension of a particular person, he can, in the course of the week, purchase with it a certain quantity of subsistence, conveniencies, and amusements. In proportion as this quantity is great or small, so are his real riches, his real weekly revenue. 
His weekly revenue is certainly not equal both to the guinea and to what can be purchased with it, but only to one or other of those two equal values, and to the latter more properly than to the former, to the guinea's worth rather than to the guinea. If the pension of such a person was paid to him, not in gold, but in a weekly bill for a guinea, his revenue surely would not so properly consist in the piece of paper as in what he could get for it. A guinea may be considered as a bill for a certain quantity of necessaries and conveniencies upon all the tradesmen in the neighborhood. The revenue of the person to whom it is paid does not so properly consist in the piece of gold as in what he can get for it, or in what he can exchange it for. If it could be exchanged for nothing, it would, like a bill upon a bankrupt, be of no more value than the most useless piece of paper. Though the weekly or yearly revenue of all the different inhabitants of any country, in the same manner, may be, and in reality frequently is, paid to them in money, their real riches, however, the real weekly or yearly revenue of all of them taken together, must always be great or small, in proportion to the quantity of consumable goods which they can all of them purchase with this money. The whole revenue of all of them taken together is evidently not equal to both the money and the consumable goods, but only to one or other of those two values, and to the latter more properly than to the former. Though we frequently, therefore, express a person's revenue by the metal pieces which are annually paid to him, it is because the amount of those pieces regulates the extent of his power of purchasing, or the value of the goods which he can annually afford to consume. We still consider his revenue as consisting in this power of purchasing or consuming, and not in the pieces which convey it. But if this is sufficiently evident, even with regard to an individual, it is still more so with regard to a society. The amount of the metal pieces which are annually paid to an individual is often precisely equal to his revenue, and is upon that account the shortest and best expression of its value. But the amount of the metal pieces which circulate in a society can never be equal to the revenue of all its members. As the same guinea which pays the weekly pension of one man today may pay that of another tomorrow, and that of a third the day thereafter, the amount of the metal pieces which annually circulate in any country must always be of much less value than the whole money pensions annually paid with them. But the power of purchasing, or the goods which can successively be bought with the whole of those money pensions, as they are successively paid, must always be precisely of the same value with those pensions, as must likewise be the revenue of the different persons to whom they are paid. That revenue, therefore, cannot consist in those metal pieces, of which the amount is so much inferior to its value, but in the power of purchasing, in the goods which can successively be bought with them, as they circulate from hand to hand. Money, therefore, the great wheel of circulation, the great instrument of commerce, like all other instruments of trade, though it makes a part, and a very valuable part of the capital, makes no part of the revenue of the society to which it belongs, and though the metal pieces of which it is composed, in the course of their annual circulation, distribute to every man the revenue which properly belongs to him, they make themselves no part of that revenue. Thirdly, and lastly, the machines and instruments of trade, etc., which compose the fixed capital, bear this further resemblance to that part of the circulating capital which consists in money, that as every saving in the expense of erecting and supporting those machines, which does not diminish the introductive powers of labor, is an improvement of the neat revenue of the society, so every saving in the expense of collecting and supporting that part of the circulating capital which consists in money, is an improvement of exactly the same kind. 
it is sufficiently obvious, and it has partly too been explained already, in what manner every saving in the expense of supporting the fixed capital is an improvement of the neat revenue of the society. The whole capital of the undertaker of every work is necessarily divided between his fixed and his circulating capital. While his whole capital remains the same, the smaller the one part, the greater must necessarily be the other. It is the circulating capital which furnishes the materials and wages of labor, and puts industry into motion. Every saving, therefore, in the expense of maintaining the fixed capital, which does not diminish the productive powers of labor, must increase the fund which puts industry into motion, and consequently the annual produce of land and labor, the real revenue of every society. The substitution of paper in the room of gold and silver money replaces a very expensive instrument of commerce with one much less costly, and sometimes equally convenient. Circulation comes to be carried on by a new wheel, which it costs less both to erect and to maintain than the old one. But in what manner this operation is performed, and in what manner it tends to increase either the gross or the neat revenue of the society, is not altogether so obvious, and may therefore require some further explication. There are several different sorts of paper money, but the circulating notes of banks and bankers are the species which is best known, and which seems best adapted for this purpose. When the people of any particular country have such confidence in the fortune, probity, and prudence of a particular banker, as to believe that he is always ready to pay upon demand such of his promissory notes as are likely to be at any time presented to him, those notes come to have the same currency as gold and silver money, from the confidence that such money can at any time be had for them. A particular banker lends among his customers his own promissory notes, to the extent, we shall suppose, of a hundred thousand pounds. As those notes serve all the purposes of money, his debtors pay him the same interest as if he had lent them so much money. This interest is the source of his gain. Though some of those notes are continually coming back upon him for payment, part of them continue to circulate for months and years together. Though he has generally in circulation, therefore, notes to the extent of a hundred thousand pounds, twenty thousand pounds in gold and silver may, frequently, be a sufficient provision for answering occasional demands. By this operation, therefore, twenty thousand pounds in gold and silver perform all the functions which a hundred thousand could otherwise have performed. The same exchanges may be made, the same quantity of consumable goods may be circulated and distributed to their proper consumers, by means of his promissory notes, to the value of a hundred thousand pounds, as by an equal value of gold and silver money. Eighty thousand pounds of gold and silver, therefore, can in this manner be spared from the circulation of the country. And if different operations of the same kind should, at the same time, be carried on by many different banks and bankers, the whole circulation may thus be conducted with a fifth part only of the gold and silver, which would otherwise have been requisite. Let us suppose, for example, that the whole circulating money of some particular country amounted, at a particular time, to one million sterling, that sum being then sufficient for circulating the whole annual produce of their land and labor. Let us suppose, too, that some time thereafter different banks and bankers issued promise. A particular banker lends among his customers his own promissory notes, to the extent, we shall suppose, of a hundred thousand pounds. As those notes serve all the purposes of money, his debtors pay him the same interest as if he had lent them so much money. This interest is the source of his gain. Though some of those notes are continually coming back upon him for payment, part of them continue to circulate for months and years together. 
though he has generally in circulation therefore notes to the extent of a hundred thousand pounds twenty thousand pounds in gold and silver may frequently be a sufficient provision for answering occasional demands by this operation therefore twenty thousand pounds in gold and silver perform all the functions which a hundred thousand could otherwise have performed the same exchanges may be made the same quantity of consumable goods may be circulated and distributed to their proper consumers by means of his promissory notes to the value of a hundred thousand pounds as by an equal value of gold and silver money eighty thousand pounds of gold and silver therefore can in this manner be spared from the circulation of the country and if different operations of the same kind should at the same time be carried on by many different banks and bankers the whole circulation may thus be conducted with a fifth part only of the gold and silver which would otherwise have been requisite let us suppose for example that the whole circulating money of some particular country amounted at a particular time to one million sterling that sum being then sufficient for circulating the whole annual produce of their land and labour let us suppose too that some time thereafter different banks and bankers issued promissory notes payable to the bearer to the extent of one million reserving in their different coffers two hundred thousand pounds for answering occasional demands there would remain therefore in circulation eight hundred thousand pounds in gold and silver and a million of bank notes or eighteen hundred thousand pounds of paper and money together but the annual produce of the land and labour of the country had before required only one million to circulate and distribute it to its proper consumers and that annual produce cannot be immediately augmented by those operations of banking one million therefore will be sufficient to circulate it after them the goods to be bought and sold being precisely the same as before the same quantity of money will be sufficient for buying and selling them the channel of circulation if i may be allowed such an expression will remain precisely the same as before one million we have supposed sufficient to fill that channel whatever therefore is poured into it beyond this sum cannot run into it but must overflow one million eight hundred thousand pounds are poured into it eight hundred thousand pounds therefore must overflow that sum being over and above what can be employed in the circulation of the country but though this sum cannot be employed at home it is too valuable to be allowed to lie idle it will therefore be sent abroad in order to seek that profitable employment which it cannot find at home but the paper cannot go abroad because at a distance from the banks which issue it and from the country in which payment of it can be exacted by law it will not be received in common payments gold and silver therefore to the amount of eight hundred thousand pounds will be sent abroad and the channel of home circulation will remain filled with a million of paper instead of a million of those metals which filled it before but though so great a quantity of gold and silver is thus sent abroad we must not imagine that it is sent abroad for nothing or that its proprietors make a present of it to foreign nations they will exchange it for foreign goods of some kind or another in order to supply the consumption either of some other foreign country or of their own if they employ it in purchasing goods in one foreign country in order to supply the consumption of another or in what is called the carrying trade whatever profit they make will be in addition to the neat revenue of their own country it is like a new fund created for carrying on a new trade domestic business being now transacted by paper and the gold and silver being converted into a fund for this new trade if they employ it in purchasing foreign goods for home consumption they may either first purchase such goods as are likely to be consumed by idle people who produce nothing such as foreign wines foreign silks etc 
or secondly, they may purchase an additional stock of materials, tools, and provisions, in order to maintain and employ an additional number of industrious people who reproduce, with a profit, the value of their annual consumption. So far as it is employed in the first way, it promotes prodigality, increases expense and consumption, without increasing production or establishing any permanent fund for supporting that expense, and is in every respect hurtful to the society. So far as it is employed in the second way, it promotes industry, and though it increases the consumption of the society, it provides a permanent fund for supporting that consumption. The people who consume reproducing with a profit the whole value of their annual consumption. The gross revenue of the society, the annual produce of their land and labor, is increased by the whole value which the labor of those workmen adds to the materials upon which they are employed and their neat revenue by what remains of this value, after deducting what is necessary for supporting the tools and instruments of their trade. That the greater part of the gold and silver, which being forced abroad by those operations of banking, is employed in purchasing foreign goods for home consumption, is, and must be, employed in purchasing those of this second kind, seems not only probable, but almost unavoidable. Though some particular men may sometimes increase their expense very considerably, though their revenue does not increase at all, we may be assured that no class or order of men ever does so, because, though the principles of common prudence do not always govern the conduct of every individual, they always influence that of the majority of every class or order. But the revenue of idle people, considered as a class or order, cannot, in the smallest degree, be increased by those operations of banking. Their expense, in general, therefore, cannot be much increased by them, though that of a few individuals among them may, and in reality, sometimes is. The demand of idle people, therefore, for foreign goods, being the same, or very nearly the same as before, a very small part of the money which, being forced abroad by those operations of banking, is employed in purchasing foreign goods for home consumption, is likely to be employed in purchasing those for their use. The greater part of it will naturally be destined for the employment of industry, and not for the maintenance of idleness. When we compute the quantity of industry which the circulating capital of any society can employ, we must always have regard to those parts of it only which consist in provisions, materials, and finished work. The other, which consists in money, and which serves only to circulate those three, must always be deducted. In order to put industry into motion, three things are requisite materials to work upon, tools to work with, and the wages or recompense for the sake of which the work is done. Money is neither a material to work upon, nor a tool to work with, and though the wages of the workman are commonly paid to him in money, his real revenue, like that of all other men, consists not in the money, but in the money's worth, not in the metal pieces, but in what can be got for them. The quantity of industry which any capital can employ must evidently be equal to the number of workmen whom it can supply with materials, tools, and a maintenance suitable to the nature of the work. Money may be requisite for purchasing the materials and tools of the work, as well as the maintenance of the workmen, but the quantity of industry which the whole capital can employ is certainly not equal both to the money which purchases and to the materials, tools, and maintenance which are purchased with it, but only to one or other of those two values, and to the latter more properly than to the former. When paper is substituted in the room of gold and silver money, the quantity of the materials, tools, and maintenance which the whole circulating capital can supply may be increased by the whole value of gold and silver which used to be employed in purchasing them. 
the whole value of the great wheel of circulation and distribution is added to the goods which are circulated and distributed by means of it the operation in some measure resembles that of the undertaker of some great work who in consequence of some improvement in mechanics takes down his old machinery and adds the difference between its price and that of the new to his circulating capital to the fund from which he furnishes materials and wages to his workmen what is the proportion which the circulating money of any country bears to the whole value of the annual produce circulated by means of it it is perhaps impossible to determine it has been computed by different authors at a fifth at a tenth at a twentieth and at a thirtieth part of that value but how small soever the proportion which the circulating money may bear to the whole value of the annual produce as but a part and frequently but a small part of that produce is ever destined for the maintenance of industry it must always bear a very considerable proportion to that part when therefore by the substitution of paper the gold and silver necessary for circulation is reduced to perhaps a fifth part of the former quantity if the value of only the greater part of the other four-fifths be added to the funds which are destined for the maintenance of industry it must make a very considerable addition to the quantity of that industry and consequently to the value of the annual produce of land and labour an operation of this kind has within these five-and-twenty or thirty years been performed in scotland by the erection of new banking companies in almost every considerable town and even in some country villages the effects of it have been precisely those above described the business of the country is almost entirely carried on by means of the paper of those different banking companies with which purchases and payments of all kinds are commonly made silver very seldom appears except in the change of a twenty shilling bank-note and gold still seldomer but though the conduct of all those different companies has not been unexceptionable and has accordingly required an act of parliament to regulate it the country notwithstanding has evidently derived great benefit from their trade i have heard it asserted that the trade of the city of glasgow doubled in about fifteen years after the first erection of the banks there and that the trade of scotland has more than quadrupled since the first erection of the two public banks at edinburgh of which the one called the bank of scotland was established by act of parliament in sixteen ninety five and the other called the royal bank by royal charter in seventeen twenty seven whether the trade either of scotland in general or of the city of glasgow in particular has really increased in so great a proportion during so short a period i do not pretend to know if either of them has increased in this proportion it seems to be an effect too great to be accounted for by the sole operation of this cause that the trade and industry of scotland however have increased very considerably during this period and that the banks have contributed a good deal to this increase cannot be doubted the value of the silver money which circulated in scotland before the union in seventeen o seven and which immediately after it was brought into the bank of scotland in order to be recoined amounted to four hundred and eleven thousand one hundred and seventeen pounds ten shillings nine pence sterling no account has been got of the gold coin but it appears from the ancient accounts of the mint of scotland that the value of the gold annually coined somewhat exceeded that of the silver there were a good many people too upon this occasion who from a diffidence of repayment did not bring their silver into the bank of scotland and there was besides some english coin which was not called in the whole value of the gold and silver therefore which circulated in scotland before the union cannot be estimated at less than a million sterling it seems to have constituted almost the whole circulation of that country 
for though the circulation of the Bank of Scotland, which had then no rival, was considerable, it seems to have made but a very small part of the whole. In the present times, the whole circulation of Scotland cannot be estimated at less than two millions, of which that part which consists in gold and silver, most probably, does not amount to half a million. But though the circulating gold and silver of Scotland have suffered so great a diminution during this period, its real riches and prosperity do not appear to have suffered any. Its agriculture, manufactures, and trade, on the contrary, the annual produce of its land and labor, have evidently been augmented. It is chiefly by discounting bills of exchange, that is, by advancing money upon them before they are due, that the greater part of banks and bankers issue their promissory notes. They deduct always, upon whatever sum they advance, the legal interest till the bill shall become due. The payment of the bill, when it becomes due, replaces to the bank the value of what had been advanced, together with a clear profit of the interest. The banker, who advances to the merchant whose bill he discounts, not gold and silver, but his own promissory notes, has the advantage of being able to discount to a greater amount by the whole value of his promissory notes, which he finds, by experience, are commonly in circulation. He is, thereby, enabled to make his clear gain of interest on so much a larger sum. The commerce of Scotland, which at present is not very great, was still more inconsiderable when the two first banking companies were established, and those companies would have had but little trade had they confined their business to the discounting of bills and exchange. They invented, therefore, another method of issuing their promissory notes, by granting what they call cash accounts, that is, by giving credit to the extent of a certain sum, two or three thousand pounds, for example, to any individual who could procure two persons of undoubted credit and good landed estate to become surety for him, that whatever money should be advanced to him, within the sum for which the credit had been given, should be repaid upon demand, together with the legal interest. Credits of this kind are, I believe, commonly granted by banks and bankers in all different parts of the world. But the easy terms upon which the Scotch banking companies accept of repayment are, so far as I know, peculiar to them, and have perhaps been the principal cause, both of the great trade of those companies, and of the benefits which the country has received from it. Whoever has a credit of this kind with one of those companies, and borrows a thousand pounds upon it, for example, may repay this sum piecemeal, by twenty and thirty pounds at a time, the company discounting a proportionable part of the interest of the great sum from the day on which each of these small sums is paid in till the whole be in this manner repaid all merchants therefore and almost all men of business find it convenient to keep such cash accounts with them and are thereby interested to promote the trade of those companies by readily receiving their notes in all payments and by encouraging all those with whom they have any influence to do the same the banks, when their customers apply to them for money, generally advance it to them in their own promissory notes. These the merchants pay away to the manufacturers for goods, the manufacturers to the farmers for materials and provisions, the farmers to their landlords for rent, the landlords repay them to the merchants for the conveniencies and luxuries with which they supply them, and the merchants again return them to the banks, in order to balance their cash accounts, or to replace what they may have borrowed of them and thus almost the whole money business of the country is transacted by means of them, hence the great trade of those companies. By means of those cash accounts, every merchant can, without imprudence, carry on a greater trade than he otherwise could do. If there are two merchants, one in London and the other in Edinburgh, who employ equal stocks in the same branch of trade, 
the edinburgh merchant can without imprudence carry on a greater trade and give employment to a greater number of people than the london merchant the london merchant must always keep by him a considerable sum of money either in his own coffers or in those of his banker who gives him no interest for it in order to answer the demands continually coming upon him for payment of the goods which he purchases upon credit let the ordinary amount of this sum be supposed five hundred pounds the value of the goods in his warehouse must always be less by five hundred pounds than it would have been had he not been obliged to keep such a sum unemployed let us suppose that he generally disposes of his whole stock upon hand or of goods to the value of his whole stock upon hand once in the year by being obliged to keep so great a sum unemployed he must sell in a year five hundred pounds worth less goods than he might otherwise have done his annual profits must be less by all that he could have made by the sale of five hundred pounds worth more goods and the number of people employed in preparing his goods for the market must be less by all those that five hundred pounds more stock could have employed the merchant in edinburgh on the other hand keeps no money unemployed for answering such occasional demands when they actually come upon him he satisfies them from his cash account with the bank and gradually replaces the sum borrowed with the money or paper which comes in from the occasional sale of his goods with the same stock therefore he can without imprudence have at all times in his warehouse a larger quantity of goods than the london merchant and can thereby both make a greater profit himself and give constant employment to a greater number of industrious people who prepare those goods for the market hence the great benefit which the country has derived from this trade end of book 2 chapter 2 part 1